Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Thanks for tuning in again. We've got another great interview for you this week. I have the distinct honor of talking today with Phil Zimmerman. Uh, he is the creator of Pretty Good Privacy, or PGP, uh, something that is very humbly named uh, because PGP has been the gold standard for email security uh, basically since it was introduced in the early 90s. Uh, and he's got some real interesting stories to tell, and we'll talk about the crypto wars of the 90s and how we're kind of fighting them all over again here uh, in the par our post-9-11 world. So without further ado, why don't we just hear it straight from Mr. Zimmerman's mouth? He's got some fascinating stories to tell, and uh, he's going to tell us all about encryption and privacy. So without further ado, let's just hear it straight from Mr. Zimmerman's mouth. Uh, he's got some great stories for us to tell and some really important points about uh, privacy in our modern world today. All right, and I'm here today with the famous and some might say infamous Phil Zimmerman, uh, the creator of Pretty Good Privacy, or PGP. Uh, PGP is you know, widely regarded as probably the gold standard still after quite a while uh, for secure email communications. Uh, more recently, Phil's been focused on voice communications and is the co-founder of Silent Circle. Uh, welcome to the show, Phil. My pleasure. I've uh, got so many questions for you, and we're going to try to try to keep it focused, but uh, you've got such uh, such a amazing background and and i want to talk about that but, but before we go any further i think i want to set the stage for the audience because i get this question a lot and that is why does all of this matter we're going to talk a lot about privacy today uh because it's what you've done uh but so many people that you know who who wants to look at my boring data you know surely i'm not important enough to be constantly surveilled and tell us a little bit about how you got into this and then why why you felt this was so important and why privacy is something that we all need to care about well um <clears throat> I uh, got into this uh, in 1991 when I uh, published uh, PGP, uh, and at that time uh, there there wasn't so much there. People didn't really think of the internet so much. They were they were using electronic bulletin boards. The internet was just in its early days, at least as far as the general public goes. Uh, I felt that historically humans evolved to uh, to have private communication as a natural consequence of um, laws of nature. You know, you could always talk to someone uh, privately just by talking face-to-face. -face. And for a million years, that's how humans talk to each other. And and so that was private. Uh, I mean, unless you were deliberately uh, standing near someone else while you were doing right. it, it was just naturally private. Nobody had to try to make it private. <laughs> but with uh, electronic communication, that changed, and uh, that it became possible for others to eavesdrop on the conversation without your knowledge. And I felt that even even with that, it was it was analog communication. Yeah. Um, so e even there, it was not too bad because if they're going to listen to you, they probably have to expend human effort to uh, to right. sit there and wear the headphones and listen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a certain amount of friction in the system. But with uh, the Internet, it can become quite effortless. Uh, you could just capture everything and uh, search keywords uh, for, e for email encryption, uh, for email traffic. You could just search for keywords and, uh, and then pay attention to what shows up with the keyword search. And, and you know, with, with machine algorithms, uh, you could... Uh, even do voice recognition. I say even because even th because today that's obvious, but you know back in right, right. 1991 it was uh, you know th that was kind of a new thing. And I felt that we had to do something to preserve the privacy that we enjoyed for thousands of years. 
or at least the privacy we had, you know, since the invention of the phone when wiretapping all had to be analog and, and could not be done at scale. Right. So you brought in PGP in this back in the early 90s. I think it was June 1991, I think, is when that first came out. Yeah. And how was that something that was widely adopted early? It, uh, there was uh, – obviously, I know you got in trouble with the U.S. government over this because at the time we had uh, we had these this sort of communications, any kind of digital communications that was encrypted had uh, – you could you ran afoul of what was it the uh, Arms Export Control Act? So tell us tell us a little bit about, about how that developed and uh, what happened with that. Well, there was no laws against encrypting anything. It, there were laws against exporting encryption software because right. encryption software was was regarded as a munitions. It was regarded as a military technology, and so exporting encryption software was exporting military technology. It's like exporting you know Stinger missiles. Um, and if and to do that, you needed a license from the State Department. If you don't get a license like that, then you're uh, violating the Arms Export Control Act, and there's a prison sentence associated with that of 41 months to 51 months in a federal prison. So this uh, led to a criminal investigation of uh, of me uh, that went on for three years, and I had to put together a legal defense team and a legal defense fund and had to fight them for three years and finally uh, prevailed. Managed to get them to drop the case uh, without indicting me. And uh, after that, then went and started a company uh, to make PGP into a commercial product. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I I think maybe it'd be better to say something about what is PGP. It was an email encryption uh, software. And it used a technology which at that time was pretty new, public key cryptography, so that you could communicate securely with people that you've never met without having to exchange keys over a secure channel. And so that it, it, it did not get widely deployed to you know hundreds of millions of people. In the beginning, not many people were using the Internet. And those that did, did, did not recognize the need to encrypt their email. Yeah. And they didn't want to learn how to use, a, a, you know, a somewhat complicated technology. But it was used by human rights activists, uh, which was my originally in, intended audience. PGP was a human rights project from the beginning. That was in the early 90s. And with the end of the Cold War, with, with the emergence of globalization, uh, it became increasingly important to communicate securely. In, in the early 90s, you didn't, businesses didn't, use PGP because, you know, they were mainly concerned about their business competitors and their business competitors didn't have any significant cryptanalytic capability. Nation states did, but businesses weren't worried so much about them. Human rights workers were worried about nation states yeah. intercepting communication, and that's why PGP was originally a human rights tool. Hmm. But as the 90s unfolded, after the Cold War ended and globalization became a big thing, businesses started to uh, experience the same threat model that human rights workers did, namely people that might intercept their communication were nation states. And so PGP was already designed for that kind of threat model. And so it became attractive to businesses. So how did that play into the the original crypto wars? And I say the original because we're kind of having a redux uh, of the crypto wars. Talk to us a little bit about about that and how the government got involved, and and it seems to be playing out all over again. 
Well, in the 1990s, the government had an attitude that encryption software was not something that ordinary people needed to have. Government's opinions about cryptography were shaped by centuries of cryptography being used mainly by governments, you know, for military and diplomatic communication. Mostly governments and not people, not ordinary people. And and that's, I mean, if you look at World War II, you know, cryptanalysis played such a pivotal role uh, mm-hmm. in uh, the Battle of Midway, D-Day, uh, you know, with the breaking of the Enigma machine and, and you know, how it, it became extremely important for monitoring the Axis powers communications. Yeah. So governments' opinions about the importance of unfettered cryptanalysis was shaped by those historical events. Sure. And along came the internet, and and then within a single decade, it became important for ordinary people and businesses to communicate securely on the internet, to enable e-commerce and to just to, you know, move into the information age. And so... The attitudes that governments had about cryptography were were becoming outdated. It, it became an essential part of a modern a modern society, a modern economy. And so we had to fight hard throughout the course of the 1990s to uh, roll back uh, government restrictions on cryptography. In the United States, those restrictions took the form of it, it, Uh, export controls. You couldn't export strong cryptography. You could use it domestically, but you couldn't export it. You couldn't export the the software. In France, they had domestic controls. The French didn't care so much about export controls, but they did not want people using strong cryptography domestically in France. I remember when I traveled to France during the 90s with PGP on my laptop, I I remember realizing that I was breaking French Hmm. law. Uh, the British had a combination of both domestic and export controls. And actually, the United States was preparing to impose domestic controls. The FBI was pushing an encryption device called the Clipper chip yep. that could be in, uh, put into telephones, secure telephones, and it would encrypt your phone calls. But every encryption, every Clipper chip was manufactured with a unique key, and a copy of that key was kept in a vast government database for wiretap purposes. Right. And uh, much to the surprise of the FBI, the invisible hand of the free market did not favor the clipper chip. <laughs> well, it, all this stuff's math, right? I mean, that, that's a point I tend to make in, in the class I teach is, is that it's, it's like trying to outlaw math. It's, it, you know, it's like software and, and these and cryptographic concepts, once they're out, they're, they're out, right? Well, you know, it's one thing to put uh, a crypto algorithm on a T-shirt. It's another to have working software that sure. is yeah. you know, fully operational. The government didn't care about T-shirts. They cared about software that really mm. works and could actually protect real, real-world real communication. You know, the whole computer industry was trying to get the laws to change. This debate raged on through the 90s. Uh, it was, today we call it the crypto wars. And it had the broad participation of so many parts of society. It, journalists, uh, academics, civil liberties groups, the courts. It was being litigated uh, in the courts. Congress, journalists, the FBI, the NSA, the White House. Uh, everybody was participating in a broad debate on the role of strong cryptography in a, uh, in a liberal democracy. 
you know, this was a, a debate that was worth having. I mean, yeah. you know, criminals could use cryptography. Everybody right. knows that. Uh, we weren't going to we weren't denying that criminals use cryptography. Uh, terrorists can use cryptography. Mm-hmm. My software PGP is uh, is in the Al Qaeda training manual. Mm. <laughs> it's I wish that were not the case, but I can't see how to make strong encryption available to the whole of society right. without also making it available to the bad guys. Yeah. So my case was a three was a three year criminal investigation. It ended in uh, early 1996. The political struggle to change the laws took the rest of the decade. The French uh, rolled back their domestic controls. The British backed off uh, their a lot of their controls. Uh, and then finally, in 2000, the United States dropped their export controls. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more practical stuff. I've got some political stuff we'll definitely get back to in a little bit. But uh, tell me a little bit, just at a high level, like what is the difference between security and privacy? Like maybe, um, you know, digitally secure communications versus, say, anonymity. Well, you know, I find that security is kind of an overloaded word. It's used for mm-hmm. all kinds of things. You know, I, I think that when people try to frame it as a conflict between security and privacy, they're probably thinking of security in, a, in, in terms of if we if we bring in uh, cryptography to provide privacy, then that will undermine the security because then criminals will be able to work with impunity by hiding their communication. Right. And we will be less secure because those darn criminals will be out there committing crimes with our, and we'll be unable to arrest them because they're using strong crypto. Yes. That's that's one take on security. But, you know, people in, who work in cybersecurity today, they look at broader aspects of security. Like, for example, is someone hacking into your computer and stealing your emails right. or your files or uh, delivering malware into your computer and, you know, maybe ransomware that's encrypting all your files and holding it ransom for Bitcoin or something like that. Maybe you're working on a political campaign and the Russian uh, intelligence agency uh, breaks in and steals your emails and leaks them to WikiLeaks and changes the outcome of an election. You know, that's part of security also. And so in that case, privacy and security are perfectly aligned. And so security is, as I say, it's an overloaded word. It means different things in different circumstances to different people. In some cases, it might appear to be in conflict with privacy, but in I think of it in most cases as being aligned with privacy. So, like, for example, and a lot of the the, the technical un, uh, underpinnings of some of the thing of the crypto that we use today, you know, there's the there's the notion of authentication and and being able to, with reasonable certainty, know that you're talking to you who you think you're talking to, and yet we often want or so, at some times. Uh, anonymity, which those two things seem to be in conflict with each other. Um, yeah. It, is it even possible? Let me just ask this question. Is it even really possible to be anonymous on the internet today? Well, uh, it depends on who's trying to find out who you are. It depends on the resources of your opponent who's trying to find out who you are. Hmm. If If your opponent is, let's say, the National Security Agency who is in a position to intercept a great deal of internet traffic all over the world, it's more difficult to be completely anonymous because they, uh, in a lot of cases, can just uh, observe the traffic, you know, a traffic analysis, and figure out who's talking to who, you know, in cases where you might think they can't. On the other hand, there's a lot of other opponents where it's not so hard to be anonymous with. 
if your opponent is only able to observe uh, just a little bit of internet traffic around a single point, around a single location that is receiving communication, then, yeah, you can be anonymous. You could use Tor, uh, the Onion Router, you know, which is mm -hmm. a mechanism whereby messages can bounce around from server to server and to be go through multiple layers of encryption and decryption and hide the location of where it was sent from. And so in a lot of scenarios, you can get anonymity. Um, but if you're in a high-stakes situation where your opponent really wants to invest a great deal of effort, then it's it's harder to achieve anonymity. Right. So, yeah. So we've got we've got layers and we've got levels of you know anonymity if you're if you're a dissident you're if you're a investigative journalist if you're you know on some of these groups that you've been protecting in the past you've got a much higher bar to cross um, but so let's talk for the, for the average person for the person listening to this podcast where you know where are we most vulnerable uh, today what how are we and giving away what are where are digital footprints where are we being seen digitally that that we might not realize? Well, okay. Let, let me um, let me speak to that. Uh, you know, there was a time some years ago when if you weren't trying to hide something uh, that would get you in trouble, then it wasn't so hard to you know it wasn't so hard to stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't need. We're not just worried about law enforcement figuring out what how we're communicating. We also have to worry about criminals, organized crime, or, or foreign governments like North Korea breaking into our computers and s stealing things. And now you might think, oh, only I, I'm, not a, I'm not a diplomat, I'm not a, uh, uh, an important government official, so why would North Korea break in? Well, you know, if you have any Bitcoin on your computer, <laughs> they are probably going to try to break in and steal it. Or, they'll, or if you're a company, maybe they'll steal your emails and they could they could steal intellectual property. They could steal your files, or rather, I say, encrypt your files and have you know by attacking with ransomware. Ransomware is is hostile software that comes in and encrypts all your files, sends the cryptographic key to a a, a criminal server somewhere, and then displays a message on your screen saying, "If you want your files decrypted, pay us this much money. You know, pay us five hundred dollars in Bitcoin." And we'll send you the key to decrypt everything. You don't have to be, uh, you know, running a presidential election campaign. <laughs> you could just be an ordinary person and, and right. get hit with that. And so, you know, we're not, you know, ordinary people are now exposed to a, a threat model that reaches down to the lives of ordinary people. Criminal organizations can target them. You know, it, it, it used to be that we didn't have to worry about you know, the Russian mafia or, or North Korea coming into our homes, our, our border controls would prevent that. But now today, the borders don't really stop anything. You know, they can right. come into our homes and into our laptops and cause a great deal of harm to us. So let's look at the, the, the modern messaging things that we're all using today and probably taking for granted. Uh, I'd be curious to get your take on, you know, Talk about the things that most people are using, which are probably horribly insecure, and then maybe get your opinions on the the apps and things that if you were going to recommend to someone in the audience that they want to kick it up a notch, that if they wanted to you know, try to assert their digital rights and say, I want to have a private app, what you might recommend. 
Well, I think that for end-to-end secure messaging, uh, you might try Signal. Uh, that's a uh, that's a very nice yeah. product. But there's actually many others. There's another one called Wire. There's another one called Wicker. If you're already on Facebook, uh, you could use WhatsApp. I say if you're already on Facebook because WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. Right. And, and Facebook collects metadata on who's talking to who. They can't read the encrypted messages, the content of them, but they can see who's talking to who. And so I say, only, you know, only you should only use WhatsApp if you're already on Facebook, because if you're already on Facebook, they've already got you. <laughs> yeah. But if you're not on Facebook like me, then um, I would say Signal is a good one. So that's so that's good for um, uh, voice and uh, instant messaging. For email, it's harder to fully protect email um, because email is a protocol that has a lot of metadata about who's mm-hmm. talking to who, and governments get a lot out of observing who's talking to who. Mm. I would have recommended PGP, but <laughs> PGP is not so easy for ordinary people to use. There's web-based uh, encrypted email services. I work with a company here in the Netherlands called Startmail, and they use PGP format encryption, uh, but using as a web service. Okay. Hushmail is another one in Canada, and uh, ProtonMail is a third one. If you if you wanted to run something like PGP on your desktop, there's a product called GNU Privacy Guard or GPG, mm-hmm. which you can install if you're a sophisticated user. Yeah. For most ordinary people, there's other things besides encryption you have to worry about. One of them is try not to open attachments that arrive in your inbox. Yeah. Because you might see a PDF file or some other kinds of uh, attachments like Microsoft Word files or something like that. If you click on an attachment, it probably, well, I say probably, (laughs) uh, you know, it, it quite often contains malware. That's how actually uh, the Russians were able to get into John Podesta's email. Mm. They sent him a PDF, and he clicked on it. And, and when the PDF opened, it released you know this malware that hmm. uh, took control of his laptop. You know, obviously people are going to send you documents, but if you didn't request it, if you weren't expecting it, that's the one you'd be suspicious of. If you you know tell your friend, hey, send me that you know poem you wrote, or, or send me that spreadsheet with the cool you know, thing on it, that's, you know, that might be one yeah. thing, but if it, if you're specifically expecting something from a trusted friend right. and you know, because you spoke on the phone with them or something like that, that they're going to send it to you, then yeah, probably it's okay. But if you get unsolicited email, it may even appear to come from right. a friend. They can fake the apparent source of it. And it has an attachment, especially attachments. I mean, more than anything else, it's attachments. Mm. That's their that's that's their number one way of getting into your computer. Opening an attachment. Don't take candy from strangers. <laughs> right. Uh, so just real quick, let's wrap up the, the the messaging part. So what about the the things we use every day? SMS, like the standard, you know, short message service, texting, plain old plain Jane texting, uh, and then message and messages. Yeah, SMS. SMS is not uh, secure at all, but there are text messaging apps I mentioned before, uh, Signal, Wire, Wicker, mm-hmm. WhatsApp, if you're already uh, you know, in the grip of Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> so th- those are better than using SMS. They're end-to-end secure. Yes, they are. Um, the, the, the hard part, I think, with a lot of those for most people is that you have to get the other person to use it, too. And that's why everything defaults back to text messaging. And so many times, it's the lowest common denominator. Yeah, I mean, WhatsApp 
WhatsApp has more than a billion users. That's I true. think they're maybe at like a billion and a half now. So there's pretty good chance. I mean, there's lots of network effect there. So WhatsApp is secure, but it may not be private. And so in the, in the sense that Facebook owns it. Well, it, it's it's kind of a mistake to word to, to toss the word secure around too much mm-hmm. here. It, it's it is um, it's encrypted end to end, but even though the content is encrypted, the the metadata of who's talking to who is captured and logged and used by Facebook to monetize. Yes. So WhatsApp gives a certain kind of secure communication in a very narrow sense. It's protecting only the content. On the other hand, you, you could also argue that uh, you know, if your opponent is you know a government intel agency, then even other things like Signal which has excellent crypto, but, you know, it's it's hard to not be observed. You know, if someone can monitor these packets traveling across the Internet all over the place, they can figure out who's talking to who. Yeah. E- even though the, the company that operates Signal isn't writing logs, or if, if it is logging it, it's only keeping it for a few days, it's not so much the logging if you're, you know, if you're a if you're a journalist like a whistleblower, and you're trying to leak scandalous government information to a journalist. I mean, you know, a whistleblower trying to right. communicate with a journalist. There's some risk that you know government intel agencies might be able to figure out the IP addresses of who's talking to who. Right. So there is risk there, even though the content is encrypted. Yeah, right. Which goes back to the original question. I was, you know, you know, is it possible to be anonymous? And it's so difficult, especially when fa- in the face of nation state actors that can see so many different things. It's hard. It's hard to. Well, not all nation states have similar capabilities. I mean, let's say you're a, a journalist operating in Syria. For let's say you're a, an American journalist in Syria, and you're sending messages, encrypted messages, back to your editor in New York. Well. The Syrian government can intercept the communications and they can see the IP addresses, but they can only see these packets while they're still in Syria. Once they leave the country, you know, they they don't know what happens to them after that. I mean, probably it's going to go to a server and then the server will route that packet to its destination. So they won't know that the journalist is speaking with the New York Times. Mm. They'll only know it's the packet is going to a server, and then from the server it goes to the New York Times. So, so if you're if you're uh, some dictatorship, I mean, if you're if you're in a country that has some some tin pot dictator um, that's monitoring the traffic inside that country, that's not as capable an adversary as you know a global intelligence agency like the NSA. But if you're a, a, a New York Times journalist in Damascus, you're probably not worried about the NSA. You're probably about worried about the thugs that are going to knock on your hotel room door when they, um, you know, if you were to make a phone call and they were to listen to you speaking in English on a cell phone. Your threat model is much more localized there. So let's talk about the nation state thing a little bit, and 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 because it's become like Crypto Wars Part Two, or I don't know if it's gotten an official name yet, but you know, these things are coming up again, and the government, you know, our government, in the face of nine eleven and, and terrorist attacks, is coming back and saying uh, once again that they need, you know, they need some sort of back. Well, they don't they don't like calling it backdoors because everybody hates backdoors, but they come reasonable encryption or or some method by which they can monitor these communications and yet somehow keep everybody's communications still secret and yeah. they call it going dark 
right? They're worried about going dark. Um, and yet other people would call this the golden age of surveillance. So I've got to ask you this yeah. question. Where, where do you come down on this and how do you, and, and, and how do you respond to people, particularly these agencies? You know, I think that it it is in fact the golden age of surveillance. Uh, nation states have incredible uh, capabilities in surveillance, all kinds of surveillance from all kinds of sources. Uh, they have facial recognition cameras on every street corner, you know, all over the place. Millions of cameras in in the UK, uh, in China, and behind those cameras are face recognition software that can identify each and every person walking down the street. Hmm. The cameras are getting much higher resolution so that they can, you know, do mass identification of, of uh, crowded city streets. There's also optical character recognition of license plates on cars from traffic cameras. Mm-hmm. These cameras were originally deployed in the U.S., for example, uh, to detect uh, traffic violations at traffic lights, you know. Yeah. But in fact, they can be repurposed for monitoring where you're going. You know, if that same network of cameras can see you uh, everywhere you go with your car, then they can track your movements. And and then they can, can couple that with the other surveillance cameras on the street. They can see who's going into and out of, uh, you know, a big public building, maybe a hotel, for example. And uh, they can correlate everybody going in and out of the hotel so that they can notice that. Uh, maybe there's an opposition politician that is always going into this hotel and right. in, in a manner that overlaps with, you know, with an attractive woman that's not his wife. <laughs> right. And then it becomes a compromat that can be used against him to neutralize him politically. I mean, this happens. This has actually happened in Russia, for example, but it's happened. It's happened in a lot of places. Yeah, people have brought up, uh, I've talked to other folks on the show, and you bring up the case of you know, protesters or parties you don't like. It, you know, Today it would be very easy. Uh, we talked recently with somebody from the ACLU about solving crimes this way where you know, I want to know everybody who is in a three-block radius of this protest. Absolutely. Protests in particular are being observed that way. And you know, mass surveillance and uh, face recognition software is in fact being used against mass protests. So what what is the future of this? Are we can we get to a point as a society where we can regain uh, trust in our institutions and work together on these things? Or I've heard you talk in some of your things where you say the default approach for anybody designing systems is to not trust anybody, to be assumed that everybody is adversarial, including uh, you know your governments, your corporations, and the only way to to proceed is is to assume that everybody's out to catch you, basically. Well. Um you know, if you if you if you take that position, then you can't live your life. Mm. Well, let me say something else about this mass surveillance. By taking all this surveillance data from different source sources, you know, coupling it with uh, credit card data, transactions, uh, travel, mm. you know, travel documents, uh, you can fuse it all together in, into a, you know a kind of a, a fusion of surveillance sources to form a total information awareness. And if you couple this with machine learning, deep learning neural networks, that's what they're doing in China, mm-hmm. then they can do surveillance and analysis of surveillance at scale, uh, like at scale, like a billion people. And that means that in China today, no meaningful political opposition can form, can organize, because uh, they can be neutralized uh, immediately. Right. 
This is actually the way things are today in China. China has reached a, a super powerful level of uh, mass surveillance, and they're they are using uh, machine learning to create a, a level of omniscience, and that means that it, it becomes hyper stable. Uh, it means that the same government can stay in power pretty much indefinitely. That's where this leads. And so this idea that, oh, we can't have end-to-end encryption because we're going dark. They're not going dark. This is like some giant 4K display, you know, which has a few black pixels <laughs> remaining, you know, and they're complaining about these, right. you know, tiny smat- smattering of, of, you know, black pixels on a giant 4K display. And they're saying, oh, my God, we're going dark, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd like to hang on to the last few pixels uh, with strong encryption, if if you please. You know, uh, you know they've got everything else. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't want to hand this over. We have to hang on to that. In fact, I think that we have to do more than that. We have to push back in policy space. Yes. We can't do it all with technology. We can't do it all with, you know, encryption software. It has to be backed up. You know, in Europe, they have uh, legislation to try to protect people's privacy. You know, Europe has had most of the Western democracies in Europe have had privacy commissions. You know, in fact, Canada even has a privacy commission. They have actually they have them at the uh, provincial level and the federal level. Uh, We don't have a privacy commission in the U.S. I mean, we do have the closest thing we have is the Federal Trade Commission. And that's just pretty rudimentary for protecting people's privacy. And so we're now seeing the deployment of legislation that, you know, has some important privacy protections in the EU. And so, you know, you can do things in policy space. So we, we have to, to to work at multiple levels here. Yes. We have to deploy, um, you know, technological countermeasures whenever we can. But we especially have to work in 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 the policy world uh, to push back on on this rising height of surveillance. Yes, absolutely. And that's something, obviously, we uh, I cover a lot on the show. Um, I totally agree. All right, well, that's, that's fascinating. And I really appreciate all your insights on these things. You've obviously been there and done that, uh, and we're there from the beginning on these things. So what are you up to now? What, do you, what, what, what have you up to lately, and where do you see yourself going from here? How do you, where, where are you going to take this from here on out? Well, I spent about five years working on secure communication products uh, at Silent Circle, a company that mm-hmm. I started you know, years ago. I left about a year ago there. Mm. I, I was living in Geneva, and uh, they closed the Geneva office and wanted all the Americans to return to the U.S., but I, I liked being an expat and uh, didn't want to come back. And so I uh, moved to the Netherlands, where I got a job at Technical University of Delft in the cybersecurity group. Cool. Uh, and also at KPN, the Dutch phone company. Okay. And a company called Startmail and Startpage, they do web-based encrypted email uh, using the PGP protocol. So that's uh, three jobs. <laughs> and then I got a bunch of consulting work on the side. So that's kind of four jobs. That's too many jobs. Well, really. You're keeping busy. I'm overemployed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. I'm glad you know. I'm glad to see you're still out there doing it. And you know, you think after you know after doing it that long, you might want to get tired of it. But I'm glad you're still doing it because obviously you made some uh, some really big impacts. And you know, and you have plenty more to come. I hope. Yeah, I think so. Well, thanks again for coming. It was great talking to you, uh, and enjoy your time over there in the Netherlands. It's been a pleasure to be here. Just want to say thank you again to Phil Zimmerman for coming on our show. 
uh, and giving us the history behind this. The man who really knows the history from back when this stuff really got started back in the early 90s. Just amazing stuff uh, and great to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Um, you can find out more about Mr. Zimmerman and what he's up to now by going to philzimmerman.com. That's spelled with two N's, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N-N, philzimmerman.com. And I also, uh, you know, before the interview, talked a little bit uh, with uh, Phil about some, you know, I was going to ask him about things we could recommend for people to check out. And he actually agreed with a lot of things I've already recommended. So I wanted to just pass those on again. Uh, and that is check out Glenn Greenwald's talk on privacy. If you haven't seen any yet, I know I've told you about it many times. It's very, very well worth seeing and spreading. Uh, send it to some other people as well. It, uh, Mr. Greenwald does a, just such a great job of explaining why privacy is so important and how it's being eroded today and how we really need to care about it and pay attention to it or we're going to lose those rights. Uh, it's very important. It's very well done. Uh, it's only about 20 minutes long. Just search for great, uh, Glenn Greenwald TED Talks. I'll put a link on the show notes as well. Check that out for sure uh, and share that up with your friends and family. Uh, also, you might want to check out the documentary uh, Terms and Conditions Apply. It's a great uh, documentary about how we sign away so, so much of our privacy rights when we sign those end user license agreements. Uh, you know, the little things that pop up and say accept, and we all just accept. Very worthwhile checking out that one as well. If you want a little entertainment, if you want to digest this kind of information in more uh, more of an entertaining way, you can definitely check out Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. That's a great book. Uh, you can actually get it for free if you want to go to Cory Doctorow's website. You can download the digital version for free, uh, or you can go to Amazon, of course, and the bookstore and buy it. It's a great read. It's a lot of fun and introduces a lot of the same concepts that we talked about here uh, in a much more entertaining way. And finally, it, I, I would recommend Data and Goliath. Uh, that's D-A-T-A, Data and Goliath by... Bruce Schneier, uh, another great book, well worth a read. And if you know, if, if the if the TED Talk from Glenn Greenwald interested you, this book is a must. So check those out as well. Okay, that's going to wrap up our show. Thanks for listening in, and uh, we'll be back next week, probably with a news show, and I'll catch you up on all the things you need to know. And until then, don't get caught with your garbage done. Take care. Mm-hmm.